Hi, welcome to another episode of Black Woman's Hour. Um, as usual, I have my trusty sidekick, Aisha. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good, thank you. It's nice to see you all. Have you had a good week? Um, yeah, I haven't done that much this week. I was in the sea today, though, and the rain. Also. As usual, we're, we're following her sea antics on here. Um, we have two amazing guests. We have Rachel Shabby who is an author and a journalist. You will see a lot of her work in The Independent. And she's normally the sensible one on Sky News doing the paper reviews. <laughs> Hiya, thanks oh, so you. much. I'm all right. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And we have Simon Morsin, who is ex-CNN. And I, now I believe you're with Sky. Um, I do have a bit of a CV here for you. <laughs> when her phone isn't on screen lock. Um, she's a TV presenter and an international correspondent who's worked for networks in the UK, US and Asia. She's been a familiar face on the BBC, ITV, PBS, NewsHour, Channel 4 and CNN. She's covered stories like the capture and killing of Bin Laden, um, the Malala shooting, the Brussels terror attacks and the missing plane. In 2014, Simon was part of the CNN team covering the Gaza war. So how are you doing, Saima? Hi, Ava. Hi, Aisha. And hi, Rachel. Yeah, I'm, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting us to have this conversation and for hosting it. Yeah, um, this episode, we're going to be talking about the current events in Israel and Palestine. We've had a lot of people, a lot of our followers have requested that we do something around it. I am by no means an expert on this topic. And I brought you ladies in because you ladies know uh, more than I know anyway about it. So um, as we said, Simon covered it for CNN in 2014. Um, and you've been tweeting a lot about the situation, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Um, mostly because obviously I'm not there, but I was following a lot of people, I've been following a lot of people, particularly since 2014, who, who started sharing videos um, prior to even the Al-Aqsa attack, the, the Sheikh Jarrah stuff, you know, the um, forced ethnic displacement going on there, uh, and the confrontations between Palestinians and Israeli settlers in that area. So that I started following that, started tweeting about that. And then of course the, uh, the storming of Al-Aqsa Mosque happened. And uh, I started searching and tuning in to the TV to see if anyone was covering. At that point, nobody really was. So uh, as I was getting more and more video coming in, I just started sharing it on Twitter. And um, I realized a lot of people didn't, weren't even aware that was happening until later in the day when people started covering it. But yeah, it is. It was something that really struck me as, wow, this this really is big and and this will change things yet again in 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 those countries and the region. I definitely agree with that. I mean, what I've noticed this time is that the coverage, more people are speaking about it like it honestly is because we would say to our guests, what do you not want to talk about? And sometimes it's don't talk about Israel, Palestine, just don't want to talk about it. Uh, but this time, so many different people are, are making statements and coming out, and there seems to be a, a shift in the narrative. I mean, Rachel, were you born in Israel? Can we just, your yes. background, you're Jewish, you're Iraqi Jewish, so you're... Yes, 
your family. So my parents you. left um, Iraq as refugees in the 50s and went to Israel, as did, you know, there was a, there was a mass um, departure uh, from Iraq to Israel at that time, early 50s. I think it was something like 100,000 Iraqi Jews, and then moved to Israel again when I was like a toddler. So I've been here ever since. But yeah, so I have a. Did you stay there a long time? In Israel? No, I was. Yeah. So I was a toddler when I, I came back, I came to the UK. So I'm sort oh, of raised in the UK. Um, but I did spend uh, five years in the region as a reporter yeah. um, quite a while ago. But um, yeah, so I have been I have been back in the region, although not recently. Yeah, so I think um, Saima has a much more up to date um, actual encounter reporting from the region than do I that's that's certain yeah I mean I've been out there I used to go out with this Israeli guy um and that's all we'll say about him and uh but what I did notice was the freedom to speak in Israel about the situation compared to here like in Israel you can have these conversations like so when I first was aware of it and stuff I was speaking about it over here everyone was like <gasps> and I was like Israel they joke about stuff they talk about it it's a discussion like this there's so much that people don't know about the region. I mean, there was this tweet that went out. I'm not going to quote it. I mean, it was like this five, uh, you know, tweet long thing going, if you don't know about the Oslo Accords, if you don't know about this, when was Israel established? If you don't know this, 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 you're not allowed to speak about it. And that is like such a ridiculous situation, such a ridiculous parameter to set for anybody because people, you know, do know bits and pieces about it. But what we want to do today is just to lay out some facts. Um, so does any, anyone want to, to speak about, like we all know that Israel came into being in 1948, right? And then there was the war, uh, there was another war, this was 67 war, wasn't there? Where uh, the West Bank was put under occupation, was annexed. And then the 73 war, the Yom Kippur War, and then there was, when was cast lead? Was that the next Generation one? Generation cast lead. Yeah, that was 2009. You're putting us on the spot for dates. No, this is I, we disqualify ourselves from talking, isn't it? It's, <laughs> the, it's the Twitter list, isn't it? Actually, I didn't realize I knew all these dates so well. It's 2009 for cast lead. Then there was 2014, and now here we are in 2012. There was 2012 as well, in between. There was a, a shorter, not, you know, oh, probably not as well publicised because it wasn't like an all-out war, but you're right, yeah, there was... Yeah, some... I do remember, I can't remember what it was called. Operation... 2008 stroke nine, I've got, um, I've actually got some figures in my head about, I think, because talking about the disproportionate use of force and the number of casualties on both sides. It was almost a thousand people killed on the Palestinian side and eight or nine, I should look it up. It was 1400, sorry. Oh, <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's, 12 1400. that's 2014, sorry. 2008 and nine, in fact, I've got it written down. And then 2012, there were 101. This is according to the UN. Of course, it's also important to note that there are different numbers from both sides. Um, so depending on who you're speaking to, you will get a, a different number, not wildly different, but enough, you know, each, each one is a life, it's a human being. And we need to remember that whether it is an Israeli one or a Palestinian. So yeah, 2012 was 101 Palestinians and four Israelis. 
And then the 2014, which I covered, was the uh, 1462. It was it was 21 or 2300, but there's um, a guesstimate for potentially how many of those were fighters rather than civilians. So the 1462 is civilians and, um, and uh, six, Israelis, but 67 uh, Israeli Defence Force soldiers were also killed in 2014. Uh, just, just to what you're saying, Ava, just to, Ava, sorry, to um, add to what you were saying about the sensitivity of it all, it is difficult and it is complex. And, you know, even as a correspondent, sometimes you're, you're reluctant to want to even go and cover these issues because it's really delicate. It, there, is, there is so much emotion involved in it. Um, from all sides and I think for me, for me personally when I, when I was tweeting in fact I was I have to keep checking myself in many scenarios you know whether I'm covering covering blasphemy in Pakistan a really uh, another highly um, emotional and uh, embedded in religious viewpoints it's an issue or whether you're covering the Israel-Palestine um, ongoing issues and conflict I find as a correspondent, I'm constantly checking myself. And one of the principles I try to apply is that, okay, if we remove the fact that there might be a backlash um, and I just stick with the facts and I say, okay, what if this was happening anywhere else in the world? How would I apply this? And with my Twitter feed, you know, when, as you said, I was tweeting out all those pictures, I was thinking, okay, if I was doing a live shot right now, what would I say about it? What would I say about what we're witnessing? What could I feel comfortable saying on air? So I don't put on Twitter nothing that I would not be comfortable saying. Okay, like just for anybody watching this, because we've now gone into figures and now we've gone into, I kind of want to get it back to, you touched on it a little bit. Why is this so controversial? Why is, because like you said, there's the religious stuff in Pakistan, which really outside of, of that area, people don't talk about it much. I mean, look at all the stuff that's happening in the Congo, that's happening, you know, in all parts of Africa due to colonialism, due to French still having their hands in the pot over there. Look at all this stuff that's happening in the Caribbean that, you know, there's not, doesn't seem to me to be the emotion attached to it that there is to Israel-Palestine. I mean, I've got my own ideas, but Rachel, do you have any, what is this? Um, I think because it's an occupation, right? I think that that's, you know, I think that um, Simo is right that it is complex, but that doesn't necessarily make it complicated. Um, so I do think that, you know, as we saw in the last week, we saw, you know, this violence erupt and this just horrifying, um, watching this horrifying assault on, on Gaza and Gaza, you know, is a population of 2 million people and it's under siege. It's been under siege by Israel from 2007. So it's sealed. Um, and so obviously watching that is, is pretty horrifying because if you bomb an area of that size with that density of civilian population, people are gonna get killed and injured. And it's, yeah. so there's that. And, you know, we're watching what the trigger was for that. And as Simon was saying, there were um, ongoing protests in uh, East Jerusalem and occupied East Jerusalem around the forced expulsion 
of Palestinians, particularly Sheikh Jarrah, which um, there were quite a few families that were um, at risk of being expelled because um, of Jewish settlers who uh, were presenting legal documents which were upheld by the court in a way that no Palestinian could do because the law is applied differently. And that's another reason why it causes, you know, so much discussion and so much dispute is because there are separate laws applied to Palestinians and Jewish Israelis. And so we saw that, and then we saw Israeli forces um, storm Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, during the holy month of Ramadan, which obviously, you know, is unconscionable and a provocation at best, right? So we see these triggers for this latest wave of violence. And I, I don't even know whether I should call it a wave of violence. I don't know if that's kind of camouflaging it because there's lots of different sort of words that are used, you know, cycle of violence, conflict, but all of that is in the context of an ongoing occupation, right? So we're talking about a population that is constantly experiencing violence because, you know, if you've reported from the West Bank, it's, it's actually very hard to unsee that or shake that off, just the everyday ongoing violence of a military occupation. That's what it is, that's what it does, that's what it looks like. And then we have Israel's um, settlements project of illegal settlements expansion in the occupied territories, which is against international law. And it's just, it's really hard to um, comprehend just how much it's the state's sort of such a major enterprise these days. There's so much funding and so much state resources and energy going into maintaining and expanding uh, Jewish settlements in the occupied West Bank and occupied East Jerusalem. And that's one of the main reasons, that's one of the main obstacles, both to the concept of, you know, reaching a peaceful agreement, but also just to everyday Palestinian life. Um, so, and then on top of that, we're looking at a government in Israel that has become even more right-wing in the last 20 years, in the same way that governments, we've seen it around the world, right? We've seen the rise of the far right. And so the Israeli context is sort of folded into that. That's not to take away from an ongoing occupation. It's just to add another layer and to say that, you know, so in the last decade at least, we've watched Israel's government become far more authoritarian, far more hardline, um, start to restrict the democratic space, even for Jewish Israelis inside Israel. So going for NGOs that are critical of Israeli policy, you know, describing uh, protesters as traitors, anyone who questions Israeli policy is a traitor. And then, you know, 2018, introducing the nation state law, which actually enshrines in law that Israel is a Jewish state. So is, is, is by definition discriminating against Israel's 20% population of Palestinians, Palestinian citizens of Israel. So, and, and they've also, you know, enabled um, very far right extremism into parliament. Um, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu cut a deal with a party that I know that can only be described as Jewish supremacists. I know people, you know, that language maybe disturbs a lot of people, but they, they kind of are Jewish supremacists. 
uh, extreme Jewish supremacists, and they are now in parliament. So of course that has an emboldening effect and provides some of the context for the um, essentially mob violence that we've seen inside Israel pop proper. Um, so we've got that uh, ex extremism and that trend towards extremism, which is happening globally, applied as a layer on top of the sort of ongoing occupation and dispossession of, of Palestinian people, all of which are sort of fed into and created this flare up that we're seeing now. You said Israel proper, just for people who don't know what that means, that's within the 48 borders, right? Yeah. That's, so, that's what people call Israel proper. That's what the British mandate divided and gave. That was the original amount of land that was supposed to be had. Israel. Yeah, I mean, it would be 67 borders. So before Israel took control of parts of East Jerusalem, the West Bank and Gaza, um, yeah. those would be the borders. And those are the borders that were conceived of as you know, the, the two state solution yeah. when the international community was, was even pressing for that, which at the moment, nobody seems to be. Yeah, and the 67 borders, they call that the green line? Yeah. It, yeah, the green lines, the 67 borders. Um, just for people who are just like, I still don't get it, what's going Like, what is going on? I mean, when it comes to the settlements, the settlements are, so every Jewish person in this world um, has a right of return to Israel, don't they? And the Palestinians that were expelled to make way, what they, it was just on Saturday, the anniversary of, they call it the Nakba, which is the, the uh, Arabic for catastrophe, which uh, when they left and they were told that Arab armies were gonna come and do something and they would go back to their homes, it never actually really happened. So they were expelled and then they found that they had no right to return to where they live. So a lot of these houses were just taken over by Jewish families. So there's a lot of Palestinians who are in America, UK, all over the world, um, Brazil, they have keys. They keep the keys to their house. Um, sometimes wear it around the neck or they keep it in, in a box because this was a key to their home. They thought they were going home, but then they would come back and find that there's a Jewish family. If they were able to come back, would find there was a Jewish family and the settlements are just new things that are being built, right? Um, in different areas, they're different, like, so Jewish people will come into an area and they will just um, Judaize it. Is that the word? I can't remember the word I use. But I remember Ariel Sharon had said, like, it was a strategy. He had said, we will make a pastrami sandwich of them. We will basically, the intention was to just build into the Palestinian areas so much that people are now saying a two-state solution is not possible. It's impossible because of the way that these settlements have encroached onto Palestinian land, that they will just be in um, Bantuzans, to use the words that South Africans used. Um, they will be sitting in different areas, really isolated from each other. I mean, even the so-called apartheid wall, uh, that's a nickname for it, um, it, it weaves in and out of villages. So you have some people on one side of the wall, some people on the other side of the wall. So just sort of trying to explain for people who, who don't really get what is going on. And that obviously causes a lot of controversy. Then you have so many checkpoints that Palestinians have to go through. And if you ever see these checkpoints, these are like um, little turnstiles and stuff, you know, I don't know if you ever go into like a boutique hotel and they've got the little rotating door and you can't get yourself and your suitcase in that same place. That's pretty much what it's like. And they are pretty scary things to have to go through. 
And um, we mentioned Gaza. There's two ways into Gaza. There's the, you can go through Israel, which is very difficult. And then you have the Rafa crossing, which is governed by Egypt as well. So I hope everyone's keeping up with, with what's going on. Aisha, you were gonna? Um, I was gonna say, there's also the, the roads, the two roads. I mean, a separate roads. I mean, if you wanted to make something that was any more illustrative of um, two uh, classes of people, but also I think, it, it, it isn't just the location, it's the, the will. The will for a two-state solution isn't there. Uh, when I hear and read some of the things that come out of um, politicians' mouths, members of the armed forces' mouths, they really view Palestinians as second-class citizens, as as scum. And, and, and I worry that, I don't know how you get, I mean, it happened. Well, did it happen, South Africa? Did it happen? That's a whole nother show, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure that white South Africans, certainly of a certain age, don't feel the same way that they did 30 years ago. A lot of them are over here feeling the same way. Um, but that's an aside. But yeah, I don't know whether there's, I feel like it's quite far gone in terms of, um, like you were saying, Rachel, with the government kind of, or certainly right-wing elements of government fanning those flames. To, talking about two-state solution, even if it's just logistically, there's also the, the will or lack thereof. Yeah, It's just like, you know, people complain because Gaza actually used to, uh, there was Jewish people living in Gaza and then they gave, you know, there was negotiations, they gave Gaza back and sort of demolished it, basically, the, the, the apartments and stuff that were there. I mean, look, I think it's really important to mention um, the attitude that I see amongst people, we got to also remember when Israel was established and why Israel was established. And this has got nothing to do with the Palestinians. They were not involved in the Holocaust. It is not their fault. It was not their business. This is basically because of European racism, why Israel was established in the end, because Jews are constantly expelled from places. So while we are talking about um, this, I would acknowledge that a lot of the reaction um, from Jewish people in regards to Israel is a trauma-based response. Would you agree with that? Oh, there's there's trauma all round, isn't there? And it's yeah, absolutely. generations but, yeah. of trauma, right? And as you say, it's a reactionary trauma. Right, well, I, I'm, I'm noting because people, we're, we're trying to establish why people feel so strongly about it and get so mm. angry and upset about it. This is just, when you, when somebody is reacting from a trauma-based response, I mean, there's some people I just find it hard to talk to them. There's, you know, you get to the point where what is the point saying anything to you? Because you're not replying with any kind, do you understand? If you're coming from a place of trauma and you are told, and we've mentioned this on this show because we have done a couple of shows now, but not about Israel-Palestine. We touched on it in the last one, but the original show we did was what is going on between black people and Jewish people. And we went through the history of it all. And we went through like why in this day and age when people are marching through London in 2020, alternating between monkey chants and Nazi salutes, are we not together on this? Where is it coming from? So I'm just trying to say where this is coming from. Now, I know a lot of Jewish people who would say, have a suitcase packed by the door. That's what their grandparents taught them. That is what they believe. And so for them, Israel is a place where they can't get chucked out of. 
where they can't where they can't be hurt or they you know where they feel like they are in numbers the constant constant moving on of Jewish um, communities and I'm not saying if this is right or wrong I'm just saying as it as it is as people have explained it to me obviously that doesn't make any difference to displaced Palestinians because they're gonna they're sitting there going what, what's this gonna do with us we had nothing to do with this we were not part of that we didn't you know uh, Palestine uh, Arabs and Jews have lived together in this region for quite a long time alongside each other without the establishment of a state of Israel so I just I'm, I'm not both sizing it I'm just if people don't understand why people get so angry when it comes to this, I was just trying to put a bit of, you know, we can talk about the dates, we can talk about people killed, we can talk about this, we can talk about that, but I'm just talking about where the feelings come from. Aisha? I think a lot of the time, I, I people that I speak to feel, and it's not even the trauma side of it, it's certainly um, critical of the state of Israel. People feel that, that we are unable to say anything because we get kind of the Corbyn effect and we're anything that we say is anti-Semitic and therefore critical of Jewish people as a whole. And, you know, I am part Jewish myself. <laughs> it's not, it's not, um, it's not about that. It's at all. It's that if I, as um, Simon very rightly said, if I was watching any other state, not any other leader would be 20 points ahead and any other state would be able to be criticized. And, um, you know, that's what I feel about it. And that is when we're talking about the kind of not trauma, but the unreasonable reaction. It feels, we start to feel unreasonable because we're like, but I can't even say anything. And, you know, we're on the left. We should be allowed to criticize states that act badly. Everyone should be allowed to, but certainly it feels like it's part of the job description of a lefty, right? Well, it's, well, it's, conflating, it's conflating religion with the state, isn't it? And um, it's a very fine line, of course, for a, a state that was built for the very purpose of providing a homeland for a particular religion. But, uh, and funnily enough, you know, Pakistan was also created just one year before 1947 um, uh, for Muslims, uh, apparently. So I, I, it is, there is a conflation and I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, um, the state of Israel does not represent all Jews and all Jews do not represent the state of Israel. It's a simple fact in the same way that if you want to criticize Boris Johnson and his government, England is a Christian country. You're not criticizing Christianity. Um, and I, I also think, same with Pakistan, say, you know, it's a Muslim country. Criticizing Imran Khan or Benazir Bhutto or Nawaz Sharif does not mean you're criticizing Muslims. However, the problem with the Israel-Palestine issue is that for so long it has been married alongside almost being like this battle of these two religions, uh, Judaism versus Islam, and, and yet hello, there are Palestinian Christians there too, and they are also caught up in this. You know, we have th the three, um, you know, very important places for three world religions. There's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, there's the Wailing Wall, Temple Mount, and then there's Al-Aqsa, which was the first Kaaba for Muslims. You know, originally we would turn to face Al-Aqsa and, and pray before Muhammad changed it to Saudi Arabia and Mecca. So incredibly important for all these three religions. And I think we mustn't forget that there are Palestine, majority Palestinian or Arab um, uh, Christians. 80% of 
Christians in Israel are, you know, living within the Palestinian territories. So it's, there is a, a lot of conflation and you do have to be careful. And then of course there is disgusting anti-Semitism, just as there is disgusting Islamophobia, um, which, you know, none of us I know out of the four of us condone or support, but it is often conflated, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I remember, that's what people don't understand. And I mentioned um, Rachel's background as her, you know, from Iraq, really, because people don't even understand that there's actually um, Arab Jew, there's an Arab Jewish population that will live within Israel. They don't even realize that. They don't know about the Druze who are, are mostly Christian. And then you have, uh, there was the influx, was it late 80s or of the Ethiopian Jews? Ethiopians, yes. Right, exactly. So people don't realize how many different communities there are. I do remember one story of like, it's not even, it's terrible, but uh, when I was there and they were talking about uh, having the, the gay pride parade um, and they wanted it, it's not in Tel Aviv, they had wanted to do a march through Jerusalem as part of the gay pride parade. And uh, the, the head of the Christian church, head of Muslim church and the head of the um, Jewish synagogue had all got together and went, no. And I was like, man, you could have solved this conflict with homophobia. Who knew? There was that yeah. one thing that drew Something they all agree on. <laughs> I'm joking, it's fine. But um, yeah, so I mean, for the recent, what's happened recently, um, people are going, what, what happened? Because people don't understand, there's always the undercurrent, isn't there, of tension in that, there always is, there always all the time, you know, due to the checkpoints, like you said, due to due different roads. I mean, there is a, a really bad place, um, which is it seems a really depressing place to be actually. Hebron seems to be one of the most, I'm sorry, I just, I don't know how anyone can stay. It's awful, just the atmosphere and stuff. And I think, uh, what was it that Abraham was supposedly born there? So there's a lot of Jewish settlers, ultra-religious Jewish settlers that go there. And there are like roads, separate roads. I mean, you go to the Arab part, it's like pretty much a ghost town. A lot of them have lost their businesses and stuff. And people are just kind of really holding on, but it just seems such a, a depressing place to live. And I don't know, I mean, so it's, it's we do talk about these flare-ups in 2009, 2012, 2014, but there is tension all the time, isn't there? On a, on a daily basis, you mentioned the checkpoints um, and, you know, why, why don't people leave? Because they've got nowhere else to go. You know, in particular, whether it's Gaza, where there is a blockade, which movement restrictions in Gaza started in the 1990s, you know, checking people going in and out and where they were and weren't allowed to go. And then it was 2005 or seven, wasn't it, when Hamas became... Um, uh, took control of running Gaza, the, the blockade happened and food and fuel, electricity was all controlled by Israel. I mean, just, in fact, funnily enough, just, just a few days before this all broke out in Sheikh Jarrah, I, I saw someone's tweet say, uh, saying, oh, we've only had four hours of electricity today. Uh, a reminder that this is, as you say, Ava, an ongoing scenario that the Palestinians are having to survive, literally survive. And, and you know, if we talk about the West Bank, people in the West Bank or Ramallah, they might be um, uh, Palestinians or Arabs with Israeli citizenship, they might not be, but they, 
they can't even access Jerusalem. They have to apply for permission to enter. When I was there in 2014, I learned so much actually um, by being based. I, I was the reporter, one of many, there was a big team there. I covered the Israeli side of things. And so that, that gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about Israel and it, the sentiment of Israelis up and down. And I covered the West Bank. And one of the things I didn't realize that even the Palestinian politicians had to ask for permission to enter Jerusalem. So often they were either delayed to be on air for CNN or they couldn't make it, or we suddenly had to call them on the phone or their phone was cut off or, you know, there's all sorts of these daily, as we say, microaggressions that people have to literally survive. Um, so yeah, the, these tensions are on, ongoing and have been never ending, but you, you were asking about where this all started. And I think yeah, the question is, who do you ask? A point that you just made there as well, which I want to make perfectly clear. Not all Palestinians are trapped there. We have to also remember there is a trauma response from Palestinians as well. And there are Palestinians who say, we are not leaving. This is our land. We have been here for generations. We are absolutely not going anywhere. And they believe it's their duty as well to stay in the, the land of their grandfathers, great grandfathers and stuff as well. So only the wealthy ones can leave though, right? Only the wealthy ones get, if you're talking about Palestinians being unable to even access Jerusalem, there's Palestinians who don't get the chance of having a passport or leaving, so. Yeah, I just don't want to create the impression that they're only staying there because they have, like some want to. So yeah. just, I was just, yeah, making yeah. that clear that they, sure. you know. But I think that what you're talking, I mean, you've just raised so many interesting points and I want to touch on what you were talking about earlier because I, I did um, watch that first show you did when you had, um, oh, the Jewish women. I yeah, mean, Lara and uh, Lara Munro oh, and Dean Bachelor Hunt. They're, bit, they're brilliant. I'm big fans of both of them. I'm big fans of yours as well. That's what got me onto the show and made me think, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> I want this on my TV, not just on YouTube. But um, there's, a there's, so, there's a couple of things there. You touch on, you mentioned trauma. And I think one of the things when we talk about um, the, the situation in that region as a whole, it's really, it's really hard to describe just the different sort of, there's different systems of regulation applying to different Palestinians, right? So they, they, Palestinians in different parts have different status. So Palestinians inside Israel, Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem, Palestinians in the West Bank, Palestinians in Gaza, all have different, um, different laws and different statuses. And I think that's the thing when, when you see um, the legal infrastructure that has been create, created to keep this system in place. Um, Palestinians are treated with completely different set of laws, whether that's property laws, whether that's, you know, marriage laws, i.e. can you live with your spouse, um, whether it's um, where, where you get, you know, the difference between going to a military court, if you're Palestinian in the West Bank, or going to just a court court if you're a Jewish Israeli. Like there's a whole, there's layers and layers and layers. Um, Aisha, you mentioned the different roads. There's layers and layers and layers in which this separation is maintained. But it's also possible, and it's important to say this when you're talking about trauma, um, it's also possible to go through, you know, to be an Israeli 
a Jewish Israeli and go through travel through that region and not have any idea of that because it's the landscaping is created to disappear that if you're a Jewish Israeli. And I think having been in that region when, um, you know, Lebanon War 2006 and then Gaza War 2008-9, and just to see that switch of when, you know, people, Jewish Israelis just overwhelmingly support military action, even then, um, and very much do now. And I think what gets sometimes lost in this, and it's not, it's not a justification, it's not an excuse, it's clear that the, that the conflict is completely disproportionate. We're looking at a regional military superpower that is effectively controlling the region and you know, has the force with which to strike and, and create a lot of damage versus you know, a people without a state and without an army. Right, so I'm not I'm not justifying this in any way. I'm not trying to both sides it when I say the rockets that fall down in in Israel are real. They cause real damage, and the fear is real. And even if there is a iron dome that protects Israel from, you know, the worst repercussions of those rockets, which is the case. It is also the case that just psychologically having thousands of rockets being aimed at you is, is traumatizing. And especially to a population that has that sort of generational trauma that you were talking about. And so I think that bit quite got, often gets missed. That sort of, you know, we, we need to, not, we don't necessarily have to justify, but just to get behind it and go, where is this coming from? And it is quite sort of primordial and reflexive, this um, insistence that Israel is, is doing the right thing. Um, even though from the outside and with you know, different media, different reporting, I mean, Israeli media doesn't really show what's happening in Gaza and quite often excludes Israeli Jewish journalists from traveling to Gaza. So that, that, the disconnect between what we're seeing and how we respond to it and what Jewish Israelis are seeing and what they how they respond to it, that sort of partly explains it. It's just that um, the, the, the trauma is part of it, but also just generations of hearing a particular line and very little else is also a big part of the story. It's the, it's the narrative, isn't it? It's the sense that you are under attack, you might come under attack. Add to that the generational kind of uh, learnings and wisdom, as Ava said, you know, you, you keep your suitcase by the door. And then to see what struck me when I was in Jerusalem and, and other parts, you know, and, of Israel, because we really, really did travel up and down trying to speak to Israeli people about what do you think about this? How do you feel about this? And um, uh, seeing IDF soldiers, many of them very young, they're kids, you know, they're teenagers when they do their military service, um, at the end of every street very much adds to that narrative of, wow, we might come under attack any minute. And then as you say also, the what, watching the TV, um, in 2014, at the beginning, you might not think anything's going on. 
and it, it was it's it was very clean and um uh, I remember being at one of the press conferences with um, the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Netanyahu at Prime Minister House. And one of my questions to him was about the kinds of weapons being used, because again, I learned about that when I was there, uh, and the, the number of casualties for Israelis and um, Palestinians. And when I mentioned the number of Israeli casualties, there was a kind of... <gasps> gasp in the room and then one of the producers turned to me and said by the way that number hasn't been put out on Israeli television yet so it, it was just kind of by default of me asking the question it went out live on air um and you know it was uncontrollable but that that, that figure had not gone out yet of the number of soldiers so it, it is interesting as you say the narrative and also you also do have to remember yeah, it, it, if you have to grab your children and keep going in and running into a bomb shelter, it, it, it is an horrific experience. It, it is an unimaginable experience. And yet at the same time, not too far away, there are people who don't have any bomb shelter and don't have an iron dome. And, and that's also horrific. And the disproportionate use of force is, is the big, the big, you know, issue there, isn't it? That that's the the context that sometimes is missing, and of course the the blockade in Gaza. I, I I had to explain to four friends this week that there's a blockade in Gaza. They had no idea, and these are very intelligent women who you know are aware of what's going on around the world, but maybe they've just forgotten because people aren't talking about it all the time. I think it's just the way that, like you said, the narrative has been framed. Because I've spoken to people before, and they'll go. Gaza isn't under occupation. We gave Gaza back. It is unlike me. It's got a freaking ring around it. Like you cannot get things. You can't even get so much as an egg in there without permission. Everything that goes in, everything is goes out. And there was also that Israeli politician who'd said, we're gonna put the Gazans on a diet, basically. Yeah. We're going to put them, you know, and they are spoken about. And when I speak about the trauma, like I said, I'm not excusing it or anything. I'm just saying this is where it comes from. But if you grow up and you hear these things and they are spoken about in such dehumanizing terms by people who rule you. I mean, if you talk about uh, invasion into Gaza or you describe it afterwards as mowing the lawn, you know? I mean, people are so dehumanized at this point. So Aisha, just before I move on. I was just going to say it was about the trauma thing, actually. So I think it's interesting because I do feel like, I mean, you guys can tell me what you think. I feel like the world has been shown what potential Israeli trauma and the reasons for it are and Jewish trauma. We have been shown in the way that we have been shown uh, what centuries of black African black trauma is. And now we're at a place where what do we do with it and what it's being done with it, what it's being used to excuse, I feel in Israel is actually inexcusable, obviously. And um, I think in the same way that we have to continue, what, what our trauma is being used or the result of it happening in America and things, it's like, what do we do with it? We have it, we know we have it, we're aware of it, we've used, you know, we've viewed it, we've looked at it, it's horrible for all of us to, for me to, I don't, I'm not watching the Harriet Tubman thing. 
you know, not watching it. I do not need to see black people suffer anymore in the same way. I don't know. Do you want to watch another Holocaust movie with Rachel? Maybe you don't, you know? Like maybe there's enough, there's enough re-examining of trauma, but what do we do with it now? And I guess that's kind of what I feel like when we're talking about the trauma, we do I think a lot of people try to understand. I want to understand, but it's really difficult to see them at the same time, isn't it, to watch exactly like Simon said um, and you. I mean that goes into what I was going to move on to because also, no 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 not at all what I'm saying is like um what I've noticed happening a lot now is we're actually seeing Gazan trauma which we have not been exposed to for a lot I mean if you've got what are the figures people say two million or was it 2.5 million people crammed into any Caribbean watching and you like to laugh, it's even smaller than Barbados. I made this point the other day. <laughs> and that is one small island. Miles. It is smaller than that. What is it, a 25 by, what's the widest part, seven miles across seven. In, in Gaza? Like we're talking about a tiny enclave here. We're talking about two to 2.5 million people in there, half of which are actually children. And we are seeing now for the first time, I mean, what do you think has changed this time? Because um, you've got people like John Oliver, you've got people like stars and everything like that. And, and let's, not, let's not shy away from it. The fact of the matter is talking about Israel can end your career. If you're in the entertainment business, speaking about Israel- Even if you're in the news business, I have had journalist friends who have been taken off air and lost their jobs. Yeah, oh, even Jim Clancy at CNN, he lost his job. Uh, who, sorry? Jim Clancy at CNN. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I know Mark Lamont Hill had made a comment that, you know, it's just, but what do you think has changed this time that there's so many more people just speaking out? Do you think it's because now we're hearing more from the Palestinians or do you think it's social media? Do you think people have just, what do you think it is? Because... It has changed, right? Rachel, do you want to say, or can I? Um, go ahead. No. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, for me, I think it's it's a mixture of factors. It's never one factor in anything, is it? It's it's a mixture of factors. Certainly, the digital age, um, and the fact that there is video and people that happened in 2014, but not quite as much. I think. Um, you know, I wasn't able to see a lot more videos. Uh, on Twitter, and I was active on Twitter then as well, as I as I did this time around with Al-Aqsa or Sheikh Jarrah, or I think people have become savvy that the way to tell our story, I mean, George Floyd, would we ever have had any kind of justice for George Floyd without that video? And I know we've had videos before. Um, uh, and, and that comes to my second point, which is I think a change in mindset and a change in mindset, not just um, amongst you know Palestinians or Arabs or Muslims, however want, you want to frame who supports the cause, but also amongst Israelis and amongst other um, white people around the world. You know, let, let's be frank. You know, it's whether it's uh, Americans or uh, the diversity of the U.S. Congress has changed. We've had Congress women like Cori Bush, Rashida Talib, the only Palestinian in Congress, uh, AOC, of course, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. You know, without them, that conversation wouldn't have happened in, in Congress, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So these narratives are changing. And, and again, when I was there in 2014, um, 
I met a group of young people, very young, you know, 14, 15, 16. They're, they're called the refusers because they're conscientious objectors. Um, they refuse to join, to take, carry out military service. And they end up going to jail for it actually. And they shave their heads and they put a military uniform on them anyway. But I got to interview um, a, a group of these kids and, and that is the next generation, right? Who are trying to access more information, who are trying to perhaps address their trauma and address the narrative that they've been given by a, a more kind of right leaning government previously. There, there are organizations like Bet Salem, you know, the Israeli uh, human rights organization. There are a lot, of, a lot of change in terms of the narrative and the mindset as well as the digital age, I, I would say. So, so sorry, Rachel, Aisha. I was only gonna add in my favorite story about the Taylor Swift fan account. <laughs> you know, the biggest Taylor Swift fan account in the world said, sorry guys, I haven't been tweeting. Um, I've been in jail for refusing to do my military service. I was just, you know, I just think it's wow. really, you know, this, this someone who follows all this like really poppy, I mean, it couldn't be more kind of poppy and yeah, just taking a really, really, really strong stand. I, it was really quite touching actually. Yeah. I think it's also, um, like you said, there's Betzalem, there's Breaking the Silence, there's the women in black, God bless them. I mean, honestly, uh, they just get abused. They will go out and stand and say, we don't, you know, they're people who do uh, document every human rights group. And I also think as well, um, it's the government and where they're going. I mean, uh, Netanyahu is having uh, meetings with people who deny the Holocaust. I mean, at that point, there, I, there have been people who have gone, this is, this is not what we envisioned. This isn't what our grandparents wanted. This isn't, you know, how can you be around Victor Orban or, you know, who's a horrific anti-Semite, you know? But I think, yeah, I think, like Rachel had said at the beginning, it, it's, it is a worldwide thing. I mean, we've got the most horrific government we've had in a long time. Even though we've got the most diverse cabinet, we have the most right-wing uh, government we've had. And actually some of the most right-wing people in it are people of color. Um, Pretty Patel, we have to name her on every show because she just went not. So I think, yeah, probably that is the combination of things. So um, going forward, I mean, what do you think is the best thing to do for people who are feeling helpless outside the region? Would you have any tips on, on how to help, Rachel? Um, so yeah, I think there's a couple of things and it ties into why we're seeing the shift that we've seen already. Um, and just, um, just like a little footnote on the, what do we do with the trauma? I mean, I think, you know, because it's, we, we know, we know what, what, where that comes from, but I think that, um, it's more about, well, then how do you discuss the issue with that in mind? So there are definitely things, you know, we, that the, there are, there are obviously criticism of Israel and Israeli politics is not anti-Semitic. Um, there are, there's also another category of things that I would say are not anti-Semitic, but you might wanna think about how you phrase them in the context of, you know, where people are coming from in terms of that sort of primordial trauma that we discussed. So it's just, it's just to filter into that, into how you talk about it as well. Um, and I think that, you know, what Simon was saying is absolutely right about the kind of changes that we've seen. So it's a sort of anachronism, I suppose, of, you know, as Israeli, uh, as Israeli societies become more politically right wing, 
So there's been such a shift to the right um, over the last, I suppose, couple of decades. Um, mo most people would define as right wing, but at the same time, there's been this growth of um, left wing organizations that actually are becoming more and more vocal, particularly given the context of Netanyahu, but, but also just the, the encroachment of, of the occupation and um, you know, the, the dispossession that's happening for Palestinians in Israel as well. So the, the nation state law, you know, and that idea that you could say, well, you're, you are by law now a second class citizen. Um, so there are things, as Simon was saying, like Beth Selem putting out more and more forceful reports, um, Jewish Israelis and also Palestinian citizens of Israel um, just becoming more active and more vocal. I actually think Black Lives Matter is a really big factor here, um, just in terms of the organizational work that they've been doing, particularly in the US, and the fact that raising awareness of power imbalances as a concept in the US and in the UK can then be, because then it just gives people different filters to analyze, right? And so that awareness might then be applied to other parts of the world where you look at power imbalances as well. So I think that, that was a really big deal. And also um, there's been a shift in, in America, not just the Congress shifts that Saima was talking about, but also uh, the American Jewish population has shifted as well. So there's many more, and that's that's generational as well. There's many more um, progressive Jewish people who are saying this is not, you know, they're sort of breaking away from um, big organized um, Jewish representative bodies in that sense and saying, no, we're not, we're not down with that. We do not support that. Even if it's on the level of saying we, we are, we do, we do still support Israel, but not like this. Right. Um, so, and that, and that has, um, fed into the sort of shifts that we're seeing. Um, but it is, it is just the case that, you know, the reason Israel has been able to, um, exert this disproportionate, like such a disproportionate use of force um, against Palestinian people in Gaza and maintain this 54 year long occupation, even though it is by international law illegal, is that the international community has not held it to that standard at all. And that, you know, the US is constantly protecting Israel from any kind of international um, measure you know, the number of UN Security Council resolutions it's blocked being just one example. Um, but uh, you could see that the Israeli Security Cabinet a few days ago, they don't wanna stop this um, assault on Gaza. Um, they wanna just keep going to, because now it's like, you know, it just feeds into internal Israeli politics and the show of force. And because Hamas has had, it's got quite a supply of rockets um, and so then it just feeds into that dynamic where Israel has to show its own people that it can respond. It's a, it's horrific um, that that's, I mean, that is the cycle without wishing to use flattening language. Um, but they have said that 
they think that in a few days international pressure will mount to the extent that they have to stop. So it's kind of like a tacit acknowledgement that international pressure eventually does force Israel into a ceasefire, um, which suggests to me that maintaining international pressure is, is the thing to do at the moment. It's just a shame how many people might have to die yes. while they talk about this infuriating term de-escalation rather than just ceasefire yeah. you know uh, yeah. just want to add to that about um use of language um and i as a journalist have have learned more and more as i've gone on you know don't call it an eviction because it gives it almost legitimacy of landlord tenant they're not tenants they've been there for generations it's a forced ethnic displacement um you know or don't call it clashes when there are no clashes it's an assault or a storming of the mosque etc and and in terms of the blocking un resolutions uh, ask ourselves if it was Russia or China blocking a UN resolution, what kind of coverage do we see and disdain do we see for that? And yet when the US does it, it, it seems to be okay and everyone turns a blind eye, even when my colleagues in Gaza have been, you know, their, their offices um, have been targeted. It, that is a war crime. It is a war crime. You know, I, I had to swallow and say it again because it, I, I can't believe I'm saying that out loud. Um, but that is I think, yeah, I mean, people don't, I was oh. going to say, people don't realise how much the US are assisting in this, is what I was going to say. No, just the US um, vetoing all the time, the UN resolutions, constantly, constantly undermining everybody else. I mean, what was it, 3.75 billion worth of weapons today, Joe Biden had sold. Um, and people don't realize how it works, that basically they they don't sort of sell Israel these weapons. What they do is they give them, they're allowed to buy this amount of weapons. They will give them this amount of money, but they have to buy the weapons from the US, but they're allowed to leave the money in the bank and get interest on it to buy even more weapons. I mean, this is a lot to do with, you know, arms sales. And I think Mark Thomas had it in his book quite a few years ago that they will say, you know, if you go to an arms cell, they go tested in the field. Those arms have been tested on Palestinian bodies, on, Palestinian. on African bodies, you know? It's just the not respecting people's life in that kind of way. And I think the other thing that I guess people could do is to say actually what day-to-day -day life is really like. I mean, Hebron is one of the most contentious places, as I mentioned earlier. Now. Palestinian families will grow in their houses and they will apply for a permit to build an extension onto their house. Um, they are not given that per the permission to do so. So quite often they'll just do it anyway. When they do it anyway, they'll say, oh, hey, this is illegal, you've built this. And uh, do you know they can have a Jewish family living in their house with them? I mean, it's absolute, like things that people don't even fathom. Just imagine you're in like your two story house or whatever, you built an extension on the top of it. And they go, that's legal. And they just put someone else to live in there with you. You know, it's literally, it's psychological. It's about driving people out. So I think that that needs to be known as well. Just the absolute, you know, the, the quality of life and the everyday. And like Rachel said, people don't realise. I mean, there was that famous image the other day on the beach in Tel Aviv as the, uh, the sirens went up to go into the bomb shelter. And you're like, they were on the beach. Do you know what I mean? These things are now being shown, whereas you have, people in Gaza just walking amongst rubble 
you know, and these little kids who save their little pet fish and stuff. I think, yeah, the sort of unevenness of it all, I think has to be highlighted as well. Aisha, were you going to say something? Um, it was in terms of the de-escalation. Uh, I felt like if they'd, they'd kind of admitted that they would probably have to stop because people disapprove. But it's a bit like when you know you're going to go on a diet in two days, so you have to eat all the biscuits beforehand. It basically means that they're just going to do as much mowing of the lawn as they can before. And that's what I feel like. That's what I feel like when you when I hear those terms from previous from previous incursions or assaults to use the correct to use the correct terminology. But um, I do think it's a big uh, it's a big point to make out that there are left-wing organizations and anti-occupation organizations and people within it. So I really disagree with this. And it must be heartbreaking to love a country and love its people and live with this, these horrific actions. You know, I feel like that must be a tough thing. And to stand up always, it's exhausting. We know being on the left, it's hard to stand up. There are times you don't want to stand up, but you're tired, you're scared. Being, being that voice out there is scary because, I mean, you know, there's been some mob stuff, as we know. So for all those people, we know you get called all sorts of things, don't you? For standing up and being against the right or the wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think also it's a real privilege. It's a real privilege to be able to ignore it. And pretend it's not happening isn't it for us here in in england or the us or, or even in tel aviv being on the beach it's a privilege to uh, pretend this isn't happening in the world and and so as you say what can people do is educate yourself for starters educate yourself really understand what's going on go to those organizations that are fair and true you know no no I, you know, I tweeted the other day because someone was having a go at me about posting about Al-Aqsa, but I said, I condemn the synagogues being burnt and I condemn the mosques being attacked. It's disgusting. Nobody wants anyone to suffer or hurt and anyone's religion or race to be targeted. Um, but we do need to educate ourselves politically as well as, as I said, for me as a journalist, I've really had to educate myself on the terminology used and, and uh, whether that's, as Rachel was saying, the narrative that goes on within Israel that the government is, is trying to use to justify its actions or as journalists, how we broadcast and the terminology we use there. I think it's really important. Yeah. I think the language has been quite scary. I mean, there was the um, IDF colonel who said, we're gonna stop when there's silence from over there. And that got people really, really terrified going, hold on, what do you mean by that? Like by silence, that means that everybody will be gone. So I think, yeah, it is pretty scary. Did the BBC ever report that their offices got bombed? I have no idea. Because I, I do recall that, because they're in the same offices as Al Jazeera and AP, is that right? Associated? Press, they had. I'm not sure actually. I I, well, I saw a tweet, I may, may be wrong, so it'd be worth looking up. But um, yeah, there was someone quote tweeting, tweeting it, asking whether the BBC were going to actually report on the fact that their offices were bombed. And I think that that's scary. That's not news. Is that news? Is that news you can rely on? What, BBC? Oh gosh. <laughs> BBC means one thing to me these days. So, um, Rachel, what were you going to well, I mean, I think, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's, you know, as for as long as I can remember, so for as long as I've been either, you know, based in the region reporting on it or before or after, you know, there's always been this sort of flat, flattening narrative that creates the impression of symmetry. Mm -hmm. um, 
and also creates the impression that it's this ancient religion-based hatred, um, which is not only wrong, but it's like, it's like, for me, it's, you know, for people who come from, you know, Arab or Muslim lands, or whose, whose heritage is from there, for Iraqi Jews, it's like, that's not, that's not a thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a, there's a, you know, Judeo-Islamic and the Judeo-Arabic culture, this Judeo-Christian thing is not, that's not a thing. That's yeah. a construct, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, that is not anchored in the sort of reality of the comparable experience of Jewish populations in the Muslim world versus Jewish populations in the Christian world. It's a very sort of blunt analysis. And, you know, it's not like, you know, I don't want to sort of start putting up like spreadsheets and stuff, but, you know, this whole rewriting of the experience um, of Jewish people in the, in, the, in the Middle East to enable this kind of narrative that says it's an ancient religious conflict um, is, you know, quite, quite galling to watch when that's not your experience or your family experience, but also it just makes people, it puts people off, you know, it's like, oh, it's, it's people in, in foreign places. It's people in the Middle East with their ancient religious slash sectarian hatreds that we don't really understand and we don't really want to get into. So that narrative in itself is um, disempowering people from, you know, getting, getting engaged or getting information. It's almost like anti-information in yeah. that context. Do you know what I mean? So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, a good point. It's very deliberate, isn't it, to exclude people from getting involved. Uh, Ava, right at the beginning, you asked us about why we think this catches the eye more than the kind of imperial, colonial crimes going on in, say, Africa and stuff, right? You, you asked us that, and you yeah. said you had your own theories. I, I mean, I'd like to hear your theory, actually. I, I, I For me, I guess it... It is because it, it's been ongoing for so long, but also because it's been ongoing for so long with the support of the US <laughs> and the narrative that that creates the imperial element of that. I wanted to know what you said, you were good, because then we started talking about something else. I wanted to hear your viewpoint. Oh, I think it's a combination of things. I think, like I said, it's the US that's constantly backing this. Then I also think as well, it's, it's you know, in Africa, um, it's black people. In Pakistan, India, it's brown people. Nobody cares. But you have to, like in Israel, there's white people. And whether, you know, people have more interest in that. People will come and they will have, you know, the, the world will have more sympathy with that. And then it's also, as I said, coming off the back of the Holocaust, the creation of Israel, coming off the back of something so horrific, yeah. uh, where people thought there's no, you know, wow, humanity can be low and it can be so evil and it can, you know, um, there's all the, uh, those combination of things, basically. Uh, I think that's, yeah, it's a lot of things. It's the way and it's, it's reported as well. Like we said, the language and, you know, and you have to understand, like, we cannot dismiss how interested America are in that, are in this conflict and how they keep it going and, you know, they have financial stake in it. I mean, it's been called, uh, 
Israel's been described by some people as uh, America's outpost in the Middle East. You know, people say, well, this is their, their ally in that region. It's like dead center. It's got Arab countries all around it. And um, it's in America's interest to keep this going. So lots and lots and lots of reasons. And I think we probably will do another show about this again, um, you know, because there's some other voices that wanted to come on. I think there's a rabbi that has wanted to come on uh, who's British based, who's uh, anti-occupation. There's obviously, we'd like to bring Palestinian voices in, but it's such a big topic. And we are, sort of, yeah, coming sort of to the end of it. Aisha, do you want to say something before we I go? just wanted to come back to what Rachel said, which I think was a really good point about how um, the, it's been made to be this really complicated thing. And the other two things that I can think of that are um, renowned for being complicated like that, Northern Ireland and Kashmir. And what is the common factor in all of those three issues? Anyone starts with the ends in Britain and, um, you know, wherever, whatever they touch. But it behoves, it behoves British histories or behoves the British identity for those things to be far too complicated because they're not that complicated. We just did absolutely terrible things and didn't deal with the history of, of the fallout of it and then go, oh, that's really complicated. Look at those people, you know, and that I think there's similarity. Definitely. It's a very good point. I agree. Oh, yeah. And, and let's they were causing a lot of trouble around that time. There was India Pakistan, there was Israel Palestine. Wasn't when was apartheid in South Africa? Was that 1947? That was was it 47 as well? They had a busy two years. Can I just point out that for me it was like British mandate in Iraq and then British yes. Palestine that became Israel. So it's like, oh, twice. Twice. <laughs> <laughs> I think but they were wow. doing all this in the same two years. I mean, that is um busy. in a book getting shit done. You but know, there's a lot of work in two years. And the Queen got married in 47. Oh, that's nice. Oh, like, oh, and that's how they distracted everybody. It's like, she got married. Look over there. Look over there. <laughs> well, uh, being British Pakistani, growing up with yes. a love for the royal family and being told about partition, these two yeah. conflicting parts yeah. of me, and then becoming an adult and learning more about colonialism and empire, and then learning that the wedding happened in 1947 was particularly galling, you know, yeah. a few months after a huge genocide took place, there's a, a royal wedding. Look, you don't, we've got Caribbean heritage. There's more Winstons in the Caribbean than I think there are in Britain. <laughs> and that just says everything about colonialism that you need to know. Um, does anyone want to add anything before we go? No? Yes. <laughs> Just, I mean, there's loads to say, but I mean, you know, it's been great to discuss it with you all. Oh, Rachel, to say anything you want to say? Yeah. Oh, God, no, I was just, I mean, just oh, to remember that we could talk about it for, you know, hours and hours. Yeah, it. we'll put some um, resources and some links in the bio of the show when we put it out as well, for maybe people to follow, people to read about. Um, yeah, there's a guy called Ilan Pape. I went to see him speaking in Edinburgh, actually. Mm. He was a really, he was at Exeter University. I don't know where he is now. There's um, quite a few different voices on this that people should, should uh, that I will recommend and put it in the bio. Is that Saima? No, that's great. Okay. I, I, there was one thing I wanted to say that will probably need a whole other discussion to go on, so we won't. So <laughs> it, it, it was to do with one of the justifications, I'll just say it. 
Oh, go on, yeah. Very, very like mastermind. I've started, so I'll finish. Only I will never, ever be on mastermind. Trust me. Um, I love in the general knowledge. I was on celebrity mastermind. I wa I was coming second after my Buffy the Vampire Slayer questions. Then we went to general knowledge, and that just ruined it for me. <laughs> Sorry, bad memories. Go on. <laughs> yeah, no, I I am at a loss. I can't I can't possibly even. Mastermind sends shivers down my spine. Jack of all trades, master of none as an international correspondent. Um, one of the things that I think I wanted to also mention and discuss was the fact that a lot of the justification is that there are, and, and, and you know, a five-year-old Israeli child died and I can very well understand the anger and the needs to defend uh, and retaliate for that. Um, uh, but one of the things the ambassador to the UK has said in almost every interview is if you were attacked, if your parliament was attacked or someone was killed in London and London was attacked, what would you do? Well, London was attacked. And, um, and you know, with the Northern Ireland conflict, uh, how many bombings did we have in London? You know, the Docklands, we didn't see the RAF go and carry out bombings in Belfast. And I, you know, it might not be exactly the same analogy, but um, it is food for thoughts. And that, that's about the disproportionate use of force. Of course, we did see some awful, horrific atrocities, which are still unfolding now in the courts, aren't there? Um, um, but just- And on the streets, um, Brexit has reignited. Um, yeah, exactly. In Northern Ireland. Lovely. I think when you have people who are using that kind of example, like what would you do if London was attacked? You're like, London was attacked. It just reminds me of, well, they wouldn't do it to black people. Oh. It's like, no, they wouldn't do it to black people because our grandparents have gone. They've done it. It's been done. What are you talking about? So I do, yeah, it, it's very important to speak about it. when you try to make these comparisons, sometimes they just don't, they don't match up. Um, it has been an amazing episode. Thank you so much, ladies. We have run over a little bit. Like I said, we are gonna cover the subject again. Um, anybody has any questions, we are on YouTube. Um, please, look, I'm sorry to name John Reed. stop it. Stop commenting under our videos, okay? Because I blocked I swear it. to God. I blocked him. Stop, right, writing this nonsense because you will sit and watch an entire show and then come and bring up questions that we've already covered. Just quit. I've had enough of it, okay? You're annoying and you're a stalker. Anybody um, else who has questions apart from John Reed, please feel free to send them. We are on Twitter, we are on Insta, um, Black Women's Hour across the board. So yeah, thank you very much. Ladies, if you'd like to stay on and do Aisha's extra show, um, which is 10 questions. And if you guys want to see that, you have to go to Patreon. But for now, thank you very much for watching Black Women's Hour. Bye-bye, bye-bye. And uh, yeah, join us next time. Thank you.